What's up, guys? It's Mitch with Respect My Region back with the RMR podcast for episode 11. Today, my co-host Joey Bravo is stuck in traffic somewhere in L.A., which has happened once or twice on this podcast before. But it's inevitable living in L.A. and when you are apparently live on the road. Today, I have a very special guest. I have uh, David Abernathy from the Arcview Group joining me. Thanks for joining, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. Awesome. So, you know, could you give uh, our listeners a little bit of an introduction to yourself um, and, and your background in the cannabis space? Sure. So um, I'm a principal at uh, Arcview Management Consulting, and uh, I've been on the I've been in the cannabis industry uh, for about 12 years now. Uh, I've been with Arcview for the better part of eight. Um, in a, addition to the the consulting that I do, I also sit on the board of the Arcview Group, uh, as well as the Minority Cannabis Business Association. Marijuana Policy Project, um, and several uh, organizations outside of outside of cannabis. Uh, I also teach economics of cannabis at Oaksterdam University. And so, being as involved in cannabis you are, why? I just have you know why? Why cannabis? What what initially attracted you to this space? Yeah. So. You know, early on, I was just a, a cannabis consumer, and really, uh, my cannabis journey started when I met a, um, a guy who moved in next door to me in Oakland who had quit his job. I had uh, quit two jobs um, right before the, the financial crisis hit, and uh, I was doing some consulting work for uh, small and medium-sized businesses, doing some due diligence consulting for investors. Uh, and uh, this guy showed up. He was a former hedge fund consultant and quit his job, moved to Oakland. Uh, we got to know each other. Um, I did some investment work for him, and he he came to me a few months after we met and said, hey, David, I want to start a financial services firm for the medical cannabis industry. Do you want to help? And uh, I said, sure, yeah, why not? So we uh, we started uh, that company in in two thousand nine. Um, ended up, we found that the initial idea was that we would lend money to uh, cultivators and dispensaries that really at the time didn't have any access to capital, um, and. As we started to dig into the industry, what we quickly realized was that they needed money, but they also needed a lot of other help as well. So we ended up building a consulting arm to the business that ended up being much bigger than the, the financial services side. Um, and then, yeah, in 2012, uh, the Fed started really cracking down on cannabis again. It got uh, harder to um, to operate in the industry, uh, we would talk to a lot of investors, and at that time, it got got difficult to tell investors that they should be putting their money in cannabis when the when the feds were raiding as much as they were. Um, so, my partner and I rolled up that business, uh, and that's right around when Oaksterdam University got raided by the feds. Uh, so I came in. 
the day after the raid and just offered to to help and me and some other dedicated folks rebooted that school um it was a it, it was tough the the feds took everything they took computers the, all the the curricula all the files um everything but the the furniture essentially so we um we had to restart it with um like building the rebuilding the curricula from email records and um the hell of a time but we got the school back on its feet and uh then about a year and a half later i i uh, ended up going to arcview as uh, the third employee at the time and haven't looked back since so what what has um kept you in cannabis this this long you know you don't have the desire to move out or you feel just set found like you feel like a found a home in this industry yeah you know i I had several careers prior to this. I worked for an investment bank. Uh, I worked for an engineering and consulting firm. And what I found was that while I was still learning to do my job, it was great and I loved it and I was uh, super interested. But uh, as soon as I really started to understand and get good at what I was doing, um, felt like I had a handle on it, I would get bored really quickly. And one of the things I love about cannabis, I mean, I, the, the plant is amazing. What it does for people is amazing. Um, so there's definitely that aspect, but also it, everything changes in the cannabis industry so often and so dramatically that I'm always learning, right? I've never, I've never felt like, oh, I got it. I have a handle on everything, right? It's never, it's never gotten boring. Man, yeah, that's, that, that's for sure. And it's, it's crazy to even think about the feds raiding a school, you know, just thinking back to those days and, and they seem, you know, it's not that long ago, but it seems so long ago, you know, compared to where we're at now with, with recreational cannabis, like, you know, on the West Coast, every, almost everywhere you look, you know, this was something that people were getting raided for left and right, you know, less than a decade ago. Yeah, yeah, a lot has changed in that time. The industry looks completely different today than it it did when I started. Right, and so with with that change, you know, obviously, like federal legalization has been a hot topic. You know, you and I spoke about that um, a couple weeks ago, um, and and with you know New York legalizing, all these states coming on uh, online with recreational cannabis. Um, what do you kind of predict is going to be the, 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 the short term or the, just the next, you know, year or two in this space? And then where do you kind of envision like the next maybe three to five, not the long term, but kind of the short and the, the medium term visions of, of, of cannabis? Sure. Um, so it, it's impossible to predict exactly when federal legalization uh, will happen, but it's, it's plausible. It's conceivable that it could happen. Um, in the next year or two. And that's, um, it's, it's definitely closer than it's ever been. Uh, there's still a lot of political hurdles um, that we'll have to get over to, to get there. But um, when these things, when the snowball starts rolling, things can change very quickly. So um, we've got stuff like um, uh, the States Act, uh, more more past the house um, 
and uh, we've got this new uh, Booker Schumer Wyden bill that's that's going to be coming out soon. All of these things, I think, are just sort of socializing the idea of cannabis with Congress. It's going to take a while to to get them on the same page. Um, but when that happens, it's going to be an absolute game changer. Um, it's going to come with a lot of good and a lot of bad. Uh, overall, I, I've been fighting for legalization since I got into this industry, and um, it's definitely needed. There's there's no excuse for us to be locking people up over this plant. Um, but the industry is going to have to adjust to what federal legalization looks like, and um, and also to the the new players that get involved. We've already seen quite a few big businesses um, dip their toes in cannabis. Some do more than dip their toes uh, after after Canada legalized um, adult use. And uh, so yeah, it's gonna going to be an interesting ride, certainly. In the meantime, I fully expect states to continue to legalize that. Um, the pace of that has just been picking up. Um, we've finally seen a bunch of states that have legalized through their legislatures. Um, initially, it was always through ballot initiatives, uh, but there, uh, there are some states that don't have a ballot initiative process. Uh, and so it's good to see that legislators are starting to get on board and and um, passing laws uh, to legalize. And do you think that's going to speed up, you know, because obviously like, you know, whatever bill passes recreation, you know, cannabis becomes decriminalized or, or whatever. And then recreational cannabis is voted in, but it usually takes, you know, a year or two for regulations to be put in place and cannabis to actually be sold recreationally. Do you envision that process speeding up or maybe staying around the same time? So for, for federal legalization, I, I don't think it's likely that uh, federal legalization will just blanket legalize cannabis everywhere. Um, I think it, almost certainly whatever happens with, with federal legalization will leave a lot of regulation up to the states in terms of what they uh, want, what they want to allow and, and not. Um, in terms of how quickly markets roll out, right? As as states legalize, we've seen markets that have rolled out as quickly as about six months. That's pretty rare. Typically, it's more like a year or a year and a half. Um, and I I expect that to continue uh, for some time. I'm hoping that we start to see more of a balance in terms of what regulations look like. So uh, one of the the really unique things about cannabis is how different the regulations are from state to state. Um, and some states have crazy, ridiculous, burdensome regulations that make it super difficult to operate. Um, on the other end, you have states that, uh, that make it super easy and it's really wide open. And the balance is probably um, somewhere in between. When we see states like uh, Oklahoma, which has medical cannabis, um, and essentially anyone with $2,500 can uh, get a cannabis license. Um, the, there are too many people growing cannabis. There, there isn't really a lot um, uh, in, 
in terms of quality control. So you see stuff in the Oklahoma market that should never be going to uh, to patients. Um, and uh, I suspect that that those issues will work themselves out. It reminds me in a lot of ways of um, California when I got started in cannabis uh, in the really early days where um, the, the state regulations were extremely loose. And uh, this made it really easy to participate in the industry, which is good. Um, we just need to make sure that you know, I would see stuff when I got started in cannabis. I'd go into grow rooms and the people had their pit bull, you know, shitting on the floor in the grow room. And that's not appropriate, especially when you're talking about making medicine for uh, for people. At the same time, we don't need, you know, every square foot of a grow covered in CCTV cameras that are fed back to state regulators. We, we don't need seed to sell tracking. We don't need application fees that cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so hopefully we'll start to see um, as people get more comfortable with the idea of cannabis, as legislators and regulators get more comfortable with the idea of cannabis, uh, regulations that make sense, right. that, that work, that keep, keep people safe, but don't make it ridiculous to participate in the industry. Right. And that's definitely, you know, the, the criticism towards regulations are like places like Oklahoma or even like Oregon for recreational market allowed oversupply where businesses struggled, you know, put a lot of investment into businesses that were just kind of deemed to struggle due to how the market was rolled out. And then you see certain states that are very restrictive of who can get involved in it. You know, there's a lot of different conversations and factors that lead to what's inclusive or what's exclusive. Um, so yeah, I, I totally, I totally see that. Um, and so what do you like as, as federal legalization comes, do you feel like, I mean, it, it seems obvious that they're going to kind of pick and choose what worked and what didn't work from specific states. But do you feel like as that moves, will there be a blanket? All right, here's federal legalization. Here's the legal the, the laws that everyone needs to operate within on top of their state uh, regulations. Or you feel like it'll be more so let's just push it onto the states. So that's a really good question. And first of all, I disagree with with your statement that it's obvious that they will learn from from the successes and failures of states. Um, a, a lot of, unfortunately, um, a lot of our legislators are not good at putting in place good policy. In terms of how heavy-handed the federal regulation is likely to be, it's it's a good question. I mean, the initially some of the stuff like the state act uh essentially exempted cannabis from the controlled substances act to the extent that a state had legalized and most of the regulatory burden was on the states i think it's unlikely that that we end up with something like that i think the the feds are going to try to um sort of add a regulatory layer on top of it and we've seen some pretty unfortunate sort of uh, trends in terms of where where these legislators are are moving uh, with respect to regulation. So the the latest version um, of the Moore Act, the, the version that I guess not the latest anymore, but the version that passed in the end of 2020 um, was it had essentially a bunch of tobacco regulation that was cut and pasted into the law and. Um, some of it is 
doesn't make sense for for cannabis. Uh, it also had some provisions that were really, really problematic. Like um, uh, it said that that the federal government could issue permits and that they could deny permits to people who had passed um, marijuana offenses. Mm. Um, which more act is supposed to be an equity bill. It's supposed to be about social equity and black and brown communities have been disproportionately targeted by the police. They are overwhelmingly more likely than their white counterparts to have, uh, marijuana offenses on their record. So to, to deny them access to the industry because of that was, mm -hmm. Uh, kind of a slap in the face. We've also got people. Diane Feinstein uh, is is pushing for sort of a pharmaceutical inspired regulatory structure, which also just mm. makes no sense for cannabis. That's that would be sort of even worse than the the, the tobacco inspired regulation. So we'll we'll see how all of this um, works itself out. Uh, I'm hoping that the feds don't add too much in the way of regulatory burden and, and also taxes. Um, right. We've seen what happens when markets get overtaxed. Uh, the illicit market, uh, the unregulated market continues to uh, thrive. And then you have people calling for enforcement to try to deal with that. We know what cannabis enforcement looks like. That's prohibition that's where we came from that's what we're trying to get away from and uh the answer to to getting rid of the unregulated market is not arresting people it's creating a legal market that can outcompete it mm -hmm. um and we've we have other examples of this right alcohol was banned during uh during prohibition and when prohibition was lifted uh the industry reemerged and during prohibition, it was entirely run by uh, criminals, by sort of by definition. Um, but now, outside of a few counties in Appalachia, we don't have uh, an illicit alcohol problem mm -hmm. that requires enforcement. Right? I could brew beer in my garage, or I can make gin in my bathtub, and if I want to do that, it's fine. Like, law enforcement doesn't need to get involved. I can even give it to my friends, and that's fine. But if I tried to sell it, there wouldn't be like, nobody's going to buy my garage beer at scale. I could turn that into a business because there's a thriving alcohol market where people have all the choices they need at whatever price point, at whatever quality they're looking for. It's easy. It's accessible. Um, and that's the way you, that's the way you displace the unregulated market is you create a, an industry that just outcompetes it. Right. And and you touched on, right, the alcohol market, a little bit of tobacco, pharmaceuticals, and so often, not only in regulation, but just in theory of what cannabis looks like or what market to model it after, whether it's marketing or building businesses, it gets compared to these verticals. Um, what, are, what are some of the similarities that you see between cannabis and these other vertical, uh, verticals? And then what are some of the, the differences that, you know, like you said, we need to be cautious of not whether it's the mindset or regulation, we need to not necessarily model it or look to this as the example. And what, what are some of the things that we need to look to, or not need, but can look to these other industries, for examples? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the notable things about cannabis is it's not one thing. Um, when you look at some of these other 
uh, market. So if you, if you look at alcohol, alcohol is a liquid. It might have 5% alcohol. It might have 13% alcohol. It might have 40% alcohol, but it's always a liquid that you buy. You drink it, you get drunk. People drink because they're sad or they drink because they want to socialize and have fun or they drink because they're alcoholics. There are a few reasons why people drink, but it's a pretty simple uh, it's a pretty simple product. If you look at cigarettes, right, that's a pretty simple product. Um, if you look at coffee, that's a pretty simple product, right? You you buy it, you might be able to get coffee beans or ground coffee or just buy a coffee drink, but it's a pretty straightforward, easy thing. When you look at cannabis, what is it? Okay, it's it's flour that you can smoke or that you can vaporize. It's con concentrates that uh, can be in vape cartridge or that you can dab. It's topicals that you can put on your skin. It's sublingual strips. It's tinctures. Um, it's edibles. It's beverages. And the reasons that people consume cannabis are so unbelievably varied. Um, people consume it to deal with pain or to deal with symptoms of all manner of diseases. People uh, consume it to relax, uh, to deal with anxiety, to get sleep, to improve their appetite, uh, to deal with depression, um, to have a good time and socialize, to be creative. And because of this, because of how versatile cannabis is, both in its uses and in its forms, taking any sort of single regulatory structure and trying to make it work for yeah. all of that um, is uh, is challenging. Um, I would say that probably something that looks like alcohol regulation is is if you're going to take uh, a set of regulations to use for cannabis, something that looks um, similar to alcohol regulation would probably be the, the most appropriate. Um, Although you'd want to make uh, make some changes where um, where necessary to deal with the fact that cannabis isn't alcohol, it's a it's a very different product with very different concerns. Right, right. And so you know, I know when we spoke um, last time, uh, you know, just talking about you know, there's this big impending you know, the MSO is the big bad wolf to the culture to the community of people that have been here. It's also the inevitability of a market that's maturing um you know and the and the difference between these mso's and these craft brands and the the price points and people being scared of being priced out you know something that you had brought up was the phrase the culture of connoisseurship last time and how that plays a role in cannabis and why that's something that craft brands should really take to heart to understanding their place in the marketplace both you know, pricing wise, marketing wise. Um, and so where, how do you feel like, could you explain a little bit your thoughts on just the culture of connoisseurship and how that fits in this industry? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll start by saying that I, I talk to, to growers all the time and have been for more than a decade. And I still hear from a lot of folks, especially in, you know, the Emerald Triangle and Northern California, people who, um, are they're, they're cannabis cultivators, cannabis is their life and they're against legalization. And I get it, right? I understand the, the fear they have um, that when it's legal, 
big businesses are going to come in and push them out of the market. There's going to be no space for sort of smaller uh, players. Um, and uh, in one respect, they're right. The big players are absolutely coming in, and there's nothing that we can do to stop them. And we call MSOs big players now, but MSOs are small potatoes compared to uh, the the liquor companies and the uh, the consumer packaged good co companies um, that eventually will be involved in the space. The good news is that Canvas does have that culture of connoisseurship. And when we look at non-durable goods markets, so non-durable goods are just consumable goods. So a car is a durable good and a lollipop is a non-durable good. And anytime you see a, a non-durable goods market that has a culture of connoisseurship, you see uh, several features in common. So if you take wine, for example, right? Wine has a super strong culture of connoisseurship around it. Um, you can buy wine from big multinationals that produce millions of cases a year. You can buy wine from local vineyards that produce hundreds or thousands of cases a year. Uh, you can buy a $2 bottle of wine. You can buy a $20,000 bottle of wine or anything in between. And there's space for all of this to coexist in the marketplace. Um, and that is true every time, right? So if we look at uh, chocolate and beer are two really interesting examples because for a long time, the 80s and 90s, there was no culture of connoisseurship around chocolate or beer. And those markets were just completely dominated by the big players, Kraft and Hershey's and Anheuser-Busch and companies like that. As the culture of connoisseurship started to reemerge around beer and chocolate uh, in the early 2000s, we saw an explosion of microbreweries, we saw an explosion of local chocolatiers. Now, if you want to, you can still get a cheap bar of Hershey's chocolate from the grocery store, but you can also get a $30 bar of organic fair trade stone ground chocolate if you want. Um, tobacco is another really interesting one because cigarettes don't have a culture of connoisseurship to speak of, right? Like nobody's reading cigarette magazine, nobody's on the message boards talking about why camels are cured better than Marlboro's. Um, and uh, as a result, you walk into a store, you might have 50 choices of cigarettes, but they're all made by a few big multinationals. They're all the same price, plus or minus a dollar or two. Um, but even in the smoked tobacco space, cigars do have that culture of connoisseurship, right? There's Cigar Aficionado Magazine, and there's Cigar of the Month Clubs, and there's cigar uh, lounges, and people take cigars very seriously and how they're made and where they're made. Um, and as a result, you can buy a cheap cigar or a really expensive one. You can buy a cigar from a, a giant company or from a, a small producer. Um, so as long as the regulations around cannabis don't preclude small businesses from being involved, which they have in some states, unfortunately, right? We've seen regulations that just are not compatible with small business, where the application fees are, are so expensive that small businesses could never apply, or the licenses are so limited that there's just no chance for other, uh, other businesses to get involved. But as long as, as, long as that's not the case, uh, it doesn't matter how many big players get involved, there will still be space for small craft producers. Um, and the 
it's going to change though, right? Like if you're, if, if you're really good at, at growing cannabis and that's all you're good at, well, you can, in, in sort of this future post legalization world, you can be someone's employee, employee growing cannabis, or you can learn the other parts of the business that, that you need to understand in order to thrive in this new reality. Or you can partner with people who are good at branding, who are good at business administration and management, uh, who are good at marketing. Because um, those, are, those are all necessary skills in, uh, in this post-legalization world. Right. Right. And I think that's important for people to get, you know, to keep in mind, because I, you know, I constantly, I feel like as legalization comes, you know, people spend so much energy fighting the inevitable, you know, when, 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 you know, to take it just to music, for example, when like streaming came on, like music, you know, music labels spent millions of dollars fighting the inevitable instead of like, just getting on the wagon and monetizing it to this new reality, you know, they, they fought the inevitable and it, that paved the way for, you know, Spotify or Apple people that came up that should have been Sony or, or Warner should have owned those companies, but they didn't, you know, they didn't have the foresight or the, the ability to pivot. And I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I think it's something that people should just keep in mind and the importance of building, you know, market share now, while it's relative, even as competitive as it is, it's exponentially less <laughs> expensive and, uh, difficult to compete in today's market than it's going to be two years from now, let alone, you know, five to 10 years from now. Absolutely. And, and look, I get it, right? Like there are people, I have friends who are growers and their parents were growers and they like for generations, they have known a thing that has made them a living. Um, unfortunately that thing, uh, was built in a construct of prohibition that is the result of just an unbelievable amount of pain and suffering um, and economic hardship and incarceration and death for so many people. And that's changing. And the, it's, it's, it can be hard to adjust to a new reality but you can adjust to a new reality. And when you when you look at what the future of cannabis looks like, it's going to be different from what the past uh, was. But that doesn't mean that there isn't space for, for people who really uh, are interested in, in participating. Yeah, I, I love that. It doesn't mean that there's not space. I think that's important for people to to keep in mind. What are Is there anything that sticks out to you? I mean, this is a very broad question, but anything that sticks out to you that like MSOs or what we... View as big business now can learn from the craft companies, or what the craft companies can learn from the MSOs. Yeah, I mean, I, there are definitely lessons on both sides. But one of the things that we see, sort of outside of cannabis, is big companies are good at all sorts of things. They can produce things at scale. They can produce things cheaply. They can distribute things quickly and broadly. What big brands are bad at is authenticity, mm. making a real authentic um, connection with craft consumers. So we've seen, we've seen, um, you know, Budweiser try to launch craft beers and they fall flat. People don't, people don't like them. 
uh, big companies that just have a terrible track record of being able to authentically tell a story, right? Tell a story about a, a founder uh, of a brand or tell a story about um, the, the, the handmade process that goes into making a product, something like that. And so in other industries, what, uh, what big brands do is they wait for these smaller craft producers to create a brand that really resonates with consumers. And eventually when it gets enough traction, the big brand will come in and buy it. And inevitably it, it, over the course of the next couple of years, it will lose that shine and that authenticity that it had when it was a, a, a small craft brand and the big brand will just go and buy another one. And this creates opportunities for, for people to generate real wealth. Mm -hmm. if, if you can create a cannabis brand that really resonates with people, you can make money just selling that craft brand to people, selling it to, to customers, but also potentially there's a big exit for you. If you, if you get it right, uh, there are people who will want to acquire that company from you um, and, and could be acquiring it for an amount of money that means that you get to decide whatever you want to do next with your life. Um, so that's, that's what the small players need to lean into is authenticity, forming a, a deep connection with their customers, making their customers feel special mm -hmm. for consuming, consuming their products, right? That's, that's what the, the big brands really struggle with. And that's where the, the smaller players can, uh, can find an edge. Yeah. And I, um, I've, I've seen here in Washington, I've seen a lot of people that kind of lucked out winning a, a license lottery and being the first or the only store in a specific area and just talking to owners, you know, all oh, the weed sells itself. I don't, I don't need to worry. I don't need to worry about it. the weed sells itself. And it's like, well, you're, you're kind of benefiting from supply and demand, you know, and not necessarily the weed selling itself because things are going to look again, exponentially different every, every couple of years. Um, so I think that's something even for this, even for the, I think for just the smaller companies out there who might not have the bigger vision or foresight or understanding, I think that's something to keep for them to keep in mind is that authenticity and, and really connecting with people is important. It's not, you know, this isn't just a, a you're not just a seven 11 selling cigarettes and gas and you just happen to be on the corner and that's going to be fine because eventually, you know, there's going to be a store across the street and there's going to be a store kitty corner from you. And they might come in and connect with that, that community at a much, much higher level than, than you. And, and so I think that's definitely something that brands need to, to, to keep in mind. Yeah. Something that, that smaller producers can learn from MSOs and these bigger producers uh, is, well, one, it's imperative that you follow, that you, you know what's happening um, in, in regulation, right? You understand what the regulations are, what you can and can't do, and that you keep an eye on how that's likely to change because these, these things change. New laws get passed, new regulations get put in place. Um, and so compliance is a big one, understanding uh, how to be compliant under whatever regulations exist in your state and your city and your county. Um, and some of some of those regulations are terrible, and you, that's that's part of doing business right now uh, in some places. Um, and then also 
process and producing um, efficiently, right? Like a small producer is never going to get their cost of production down to what what some of these really big um, producers can do. I mean, I've seen cannabis cultivations that can pump out decent quality cannabis at $350, $400 a pound. And if you're a small grower, you're never going to get your costs down that low. But you do need to get your costs down um, uh, as low as you can and still maintain the the kind of product that you want to produce because there are a lot of people competing in this market. And uh, if someone else can uh, can squeeze you on margins, that's... Uh, that could could put you out of business. I do think that we'll see a lot of um, change in the way consumers approach cannabis, and we're already starting to see that. Cannabis consumers are still coming from a very prohibition mindset, uh, where when they're shopping for cannabis, they're looking at like an edible's price per milligram, or um, uh, you know, in flower price per percentage point, right? They want the strongest cannabis they can find at the lowest cost. And that's just not how, right? That's how consumers in illicit drug markets shop. <laughs> that's not how consumers in most markets shop. So if you look at, um, at alcohol, right? There are a few consumers who just want the strongest alcohol they can get for the lowest price. But most consumers, that's not what they're looking for, right? They're looking for something that tastes the way they want it to taste or that uh, the brand has this, the, the story they connect with or they like the label or the bottle, right? Or, or um, you know, that's the, the, the thing that their friends drink. Um, coffee is another one, right? Like people, they're used to, there was a time when like good coffee meant strong coffee, right? Weak coffee was bad, strong coffee was good. The stronger it is, the better it is. But that's not the world we live in. Consumers aren't just trying to get the strongest coffee they can get their hands on. They are shopping for coffee with all sorts of other considerations. Where did it come from? Is it fair trade? Is it convenient? Is it uh, easy? Do I like the taste? Do I like the fact that it comes from Starbucks? Or do I like the fact that it comes from my local you know corner coffee shop that has a slam poetry night once a month um and so we're starting to see cannabis consumers sort of refine the the reasons that they're purchasing cannabis uh to include a, a broader set of considerations and we're seeing things like uh can is a good example can is a uh, cannabis beverage. It's low um, low dose. I think it's two milligrams uh, of THC per can. And so no one's buying it because it's the it's the strongest cannabis they can get for the price. They're buying it because they love the packaging or they love the taste or they love the fact that it's low dose and that's what they're looking for. They love the fact that they can drink, you know, three or four of them. Um, and so the uh, the market is going to continue to evolve as consumers start to become more sophisticated about why they choose cannabis products. Right. And that, and that just leads way for more brands to coexist because they can own each brand can own its own positioning rather than like you said, like, I mean, there's only going to be, if you want the strongest THC, eventually there's only going to be so many brands that can compete for it. Just like Cola, you know, there's Pepsi and there's Coke. Yeah. 
you, you can't have 35 brands competing to be cola. There's, you know, a couple colas and then there's, you know, Sprite, the anti-cola, and then there's a couple other, other things. And that it's a, as the industry matures, that's a great thing for brands because there's just more opportunities to own different lanes and cut a brand out. Like you said, around something different that consumers can connect to other than just weed selling itself, you know? Yeah. I mean, look at, look at alcohol or look at coffee, right? These are two, uh, the two most popular drugs in the United States. And there, there are so many right there. Every time, every time I walk into a liquor store, I see it, a brand of alcohol that I've never seen before. There, uh, there are big companies, there are small companies, there's companies doing weird stuff, putting all kinds of different flavors. There are companies playing with liqueur and all sorts of different alcohol percentages, um, coffee. There, there are, um, the time that it was, you know, Folgers and Uban was the, the choice of coffee is, um, is long behind us. And even though there are some big dominant players um, that sell a huge volume, they sell a ton of coffee. There's still all sorts of little unique boutique retailers and brands. Um, and, you know, people will flock to those and they're willing to pay a premium for what they're looking mm -hmm. for. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, that's a perfect example. Cause like even, even as established as coffee is, you know, I live in Seattle. I mean, Starbucks is, is global as like in see you know i could literally throw a rock and hit a starbucks you know over here but there's still new coffee places popping up in this highly mature highly competitive market and you know I, a new a newer coffee place just opened up not too far from me and there i mean they're it's way more expensive than starbucks and it's it's you know even in the middle of a pandemic it's thriving because there's just other elements of their their brand their shop and their what they're offerings that you just don't, you're not going to get at a Starbucks. Um, and that's a perfect thing, I think, for, for brands to just to keep in mind is just be, you know, being different and, and owning those channels. Um, and I, I want to back it up for half a second and just talk about you brought up can. I was, you know, very impressed with their beverage. You know, I think they're the number one beverage in California by sales volume I think for at least quarter that, one. That sounds right. I think is what I saw in a headset report. But they've only, I mean, they started in like mid 2019. So in under two years, they completely owned a channel. Um, do you have any thoughts of like what they did to own that, that like to really carve out that, that hold on that channel? Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a few things. Um, one, the, the founder of Ken comes from a, a CPG background. He has a lot of experience in mainstream markets creating uh brands that that resonate with consumers their their design is fantastic they made a really good looking product um also they went into a category beverage the cannabis beverage category that is small like there's a lot of excitement about beverages and ever since uh constellation brands put um four billion dollars into canopy growth in in canada a few years ago, there's been tons of investment in in uh, cannabis beverages, but it's still a really small market. I mean, even in mature states, cannabis beverages are something like one to maybe two, right? One, one and a half percent of cannabis sales. 
Um, so when you find when you find um, sort of a, a market like this, there are a lot of big players that aren't getting involved in beverages because it feels too small for them. But if you can go in and dominate that market, it's not, it doesn't feel small anymore, right? If you can be the biggest fish in that small pond, um, that's big. They also they work with with folks who understand things like distribution logistics, and that's one of the big bottlenecks for cannabis beverages. Um, if you, most cannabis products, right, if you're talking about flour, vape cartridges, edibles, most of them are um, small, they're light, uh, most of them don't need any sort of special uh, like refrigeration. Um, beverages have a lot of challenges. Beverages are big comparatively, they take up a lot of space. Um, Right. If you want to stock a store with cannabis beverages, it takes up just a lot of physical room. They're very heavy. It's hard to move around large quantities of liquid. Uh, a lot of the beverages come in glass bottles. Glass bottles are logistically more challenging than than most of the things that cannabis businesses have to have to deal with. Um, so understanding, right? And and Ken doesn't need to know everything about beverage distribution logistics. They just need to know who they need to partner with, who understands beverage distribution logistics to, to make that work. And, um, and I think that's a, a really important lesson is you, you need to really, really deeply understand your business and understand it on a level that most people will never think about. Um, so I think that's one of the, the or the, those are some of the things that that Ken really did right, and and also frankly offering a low dose product. There was a, there's a pent up demand for low dose cannabis products, and they don't sell as well overall as high dose products, which is why so few people make them. But there are a lot of consumers, especially new consumers, who want something low dose. They're not looking to get as high as they can be, and Maybe their tolerance is lower. They're they're looking for something easy and manageable and not intimidating. Um, and I think can hit that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, that was something I was impressed with their marketing rollout of, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of companies come to us for, you know, whether it's consulting advice and, and that's the can of curious, that lower dose thing is what a lot of people want to go after or talk about going after. Not a lot of people have done it. Not a lot of even less people have been successful at it. And I think Can did a really good job coming out with a product that had that familiarity and the look and the appeal to just, you know, normalize beverages. Um, but then also, I think they did a really, really good job communicating that it was low dose. Like I even saw Ellen, you know, I don't know if they paid her or not, but like Ellen brought it up <laughs> and just even in her pitch oh i was she was like oh, i was drinking a weed beverage last night but don't it only had two milligrams you know it's anyone can drink that and i was like i hope they gave her the script if not she just came up with like the <laughs> perfect influencer marketing pitch but their messaging whether it was super manufactured or not it just it cut through unlike any other messaging i've seen around any cannabis product um i, I was really impressed with that the, the rollout yeah absolutely and look marketing is tough in the cannabis industry uh, a lot of marketing channels that most businesses rely on are just not available to cannabis companies. Um, I mean, the the fact that 
uh, companies like Facebook and Google have policies against cannabis advertising makes life challenging. Right. And then the, the advertising regulations vary from state to state and sometimes even city to city, what you can and, and can't do. So cannabis companies need to be creative when they um, when they think about uh, how to how to reach consumers, how to market to consumers. And so that, that leads to another question is, as we move towards a more mature market, you know, federal legalization, do you feel like those platforms are going to at some point be, I wouldn't say quite say open arms, but accepting of that? Or do you kind of anticipate it to maybe even be stricter than what it is now, but at least somewhat defined because it's pretty vague? I, I expect that things will things will loosen up. Um, I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I, it's absurd to me that there are places that you can put uh, a, an ad for vodka that you can't put an ad for cannabis. That like that makes no sense. On the one hand, you have one of the most dangerous drugs in America that results uh, in huge numbers of deaths. And don't get me wrong, alcohol can be great. It can be great and it can be terrible and it can be devastating and it can destroy people's lives. Um, if you can if you can advertise alcohol, you definitely should be able to to advertise cannabis. It's such a uh, it, it's cannabis is not 100 percent without harm, but its harms are so much smaller than alcohol or tobacco um, that it. I shouldn't even shouldn't even be in the same ballpark. Um, so yeah, I I do think that eventually advertising will open up a little bit more, and uh, we'll start to be able to uh, use some of the more traditional marketing channels that other businesses have access to. That's a yeah, that's a, that's a good outlook. So I, I want to take another another step back and bring it back a little bit to um, the Arcview Group. You guys, as as a collective, or you know, very well known in in the cannabis space for, you know, advising, consulting, investments. Um, what are what are some of the things that make a company attractive to you guys that that somebody that you guys want to work with or or help or or what what are some of the criteria that you guys look at that that makes something valuable to to come into your guys' circle? Sure. So so we actually have a, a family of companies now at the Arcview Group. So we've got the Arcview Group, which is the the parent company, and then we've got uh, Arcview Capital, which is a FINRA and SEC licensed broker dealer. So they really go out and help companies raise capital in a in a very hands on way, and they uh, they do equity crowdfunding. They they help with uh, M and A uh stuff ipos things things uh like that so they're looking for really strong cannabis companies that they can um that that they can really sell to large investors um there's uh, rp ventures um which is uh a, a member managed venture fund and they're really just looking for good strong cannabis investment opportunities they want to see a solid business plan they want to see good traction they want to see a great management team that's that's one of the the most important things um and then on the consulting side uh we we're looking for companies that 
um, are, are looking for strategic help. So we work across um, medical and adult use cannabis, uh, hemp, um, CBD, and other, other hemp-derived cannabinoids, as well as industrial hemp, so grain and fiber. Um, and we help companies with just all sorts of problems. So we help companies uh, assess multi-state expansion strategies and prioritize uh, where they're gonna go next and, and what that looks like, right? There are a lot of different ways you can enter a new market and some ways are better for some businesses than others. Um, we help uh, businesses create really compelling um, investment materials and prepare for capital raises. Um, we help companies uh, evaluate verticals. So we we helped a, a, a large company that was looking at acquiring a hemp genetics company. They needed to understand the hemp genetics space, right? They needed to understand what's the potential for differentiated hemp genetics. What does the market look like today? What's the market? How's that going to evolve? What does the market for hemp genetics look like uh, five years from now? Um, so that they could determine whether the valuation of the company that they were looking to acquire was reasonable. Um, we help companies prepare for federal legalization. Um, not enough cannabis companies are starting to think mm. about how the, the changes that come along with federal legalization are likely to affect their businesses. Things like interstate commerce, right? Um, if you're a, a cannabis company um, in uh, California and you can produce really high quality, low cost cannabis, maybe the prospect of being able to send that cannabis to other states is, uh, is a potential opportunity for you. If you're uh, a cultivator in Maine growing cannabis that will never, you'll never get the cost of production down to what uh, folks can get in states that are better suited to growing plants, um, that could be a really big threat to your business. Um, for ancillary companies, right? If you're um, a cannabis HR services provider, probably you've got um, some space in the market to operate because the mainstream HR yeah. companies either are sitting on the sidelines and, and don't want to work with cannabis companies or they don't understand the, the sort of specific regulatory concerns of cannabis companies well enough, but in a post-federal legalization world, uh, if you're offering cannabis HR services, you better have a plan for um, what that's, what that's going to look like and how you're either going to sell to the big mm. mainstream established HR companies or how you're going to hold your ground against them, how you're going to compete with them. Um, Payment services, we see right companies that that offer cashless payment solutions, and um, they there's there's space for that in the market because cannabis companies have a hard time with bank accounts and and credit card processing. Um, that's no longer going to be true in the post legalization world, and that could change even sooner with with something like safe banking. Um, so these companies really need to start to assess. Um, what their position is, and we we help them think through all of these uh, all of these things and and build strategies to position themselves to to not only survive but to thrive uh, as the market continues to change.
And so for you guys, I mean, I don't know if it's something you can share. Do you, and obviously there's multiple arms and within those arms, a, a broad spectrum. But what do you feel like is your guys' kind of, are, are you guys focused on and working in more of the emerging markets, a higher percentage in there, or more of the established markets? Or is it a real healthy mix of, of both? It's a, it's a real healthy mix. We work um, across markets. We even work internationally. Um, so, um, yeah, we're, we're really here to leverage all of our years of experience, all of our market research, our access to data through our data partnerships to help cannabis companies um, and companies that are interested in, mm. in participating in one way or another in the cannabis or hemp space. Uh, to help them um, survive. So yeah, if if it's uh, you know a new licensee and or a new license applicant in New York that's that's looking to to submit a, a license application when that opens up, um, that's great. And if it's a, an operator that um, is operating in California and they're looking to expand their brand, add different uh, product categories. Uh, expand into new states, um, just better understand their, their consumers, uh, who their consumers are, what those, uh, what those consumers' behaviors are. Um, we help them. So yeah, we don't, we don't, uh, have a, on, on the consulting side, we don't have a favorite, um, a favorite kind of cannabis company. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, on the investment side, I mean, I don't want to, to speak for, my colleagues on that side of the business, but they're they're just looking for really strong companies that are that are a great opportunity. And if uh, that's in California, great. And if you know if that's in in Maryland, great. Right. That, that, that makes that makes sense. Um, I mean, such now now with you guys having all these different divisions, you're definitely all all over all over the board helping people in various aspects. Um, what is the main thing that you feel like you really want people to take away about the Arc View Group? What What do you guys want to be positioned as, known as? I mean, obviously, again, it's broad because there's different arms of the business, but is there like a, a singular mission that you feel like you guys are are kind of uh, rallied behind? Yeah, I mean, it's a, the the Arc View Group was started by Troy Dayton and Steve D'Angelo, um, really to help legalize cannabis. They recognized that. Uh, business was one of the most powerful platforms for social change, and that if we wanted to to push this um, this legalization forward, we needed to be able to leverage business and leverage capital uh, to make that happen. Um, it's really a company rooted in a love of the plant and a love of uh, activism and the community um, that that this plant creates um it another thing that i want people to take away is the importance of social equity um we haven't really touched on that very much but it's it's hard to overstate yeah. how much worse the war on drugs has been on certain communities um black and brown communities uh and it's it's time for us to figure out how to make sure that the the new legal industry that we're creating is inclusive uh, for everyone. Um, uh, even though 
they right that people are coming from places where they might not have the same access to capital to networks to education that um that other folks have uh so we're working on solving that the the name arcview actually comes from a martin luther king quote um which was the the arc of the uh moral universe is long but it bends towards justice mm. um so uh on on the arcview capital side they're uh really working on new ways to create non-predatory funding opportunities for social equity licensees. Um, we just uh, just actually announced a, a new course um, that we put together with Amsterdam University uh, to help educate people about uh, the, the cannabis fundraising landscape. This is something that's been sort of bouncing around in my head for a long time. And I'm really excited that I was able to bring Arcview and Amsterdam together to, mm. to do this. The, the course is really designed so that uh, when, you, um, when you start to go out to, to try to raise capital for a cannabis business, you, can, you won't be lost in the conversations that investors are having, that business partners are having. Mm. So you understand what private equity is and what venture capital is you understand what a, a series a round is and what a convertible note is right like there there's all this jargon in the investment community and if you're not if you're not part of that if you don't have a, a history and a background in that it can be really uh overwhelming and um and disorienting so this this course is really designed to help people uh, get up to speed on what all of these things mean and and hopefully put them in a really good place to be able to to navigate um, the waters because if you want to uh, uh, if you want to have a successful cannabis business chances are at some point you're going to have to raise some money so uh, man, I, I love that and that's something like you know I think one of the, the the misconceptions or or stigmas of you know in this space right with with big business as opposed to just craft, the culture, whatever, whenever people think of investment or big business, they get a little leery of people being in it for the wrong reasons, you know. Um, but in every conversation I've had with you and everything I've talked to you about, it's like you guys are just really like rooted in the complete opposite of that in the in the mission, the purpose, so many of the things that you guys are doing. Um, and I, I just think that that's just really interesting. And I think that's a good thing for the, you know, for the community out there to understand that, that resources like you guys and, and I mean the, the the multitude of resources you guys have is not everything is here to take advantage of someone or to just push this big agenda of profits over whatever and kick everyone to the curb that you know from everything you've spoke about and a, a lot of just the the gems that if anyone is listening are are rooted in giving power to you know not necessarily the smaller person, but the person that really wants to carve out and, and make, make, a, make a name in this industry, regardless of where they come from or their financial backing. You know, it's really about building with the tools that you have and then leveraging that to get to the next level and leveraging that to get to the next level. And a big part of that is mentorship, education, um, you know, collaboration and, and partnerships. And it seems like you guys are just kind of touching all sides of that spectrum. And I think that's really unique. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I, people's concerns about that are real, right? There are people who are in this who uh, don't have a good moral foundation. There are people who are predatory, who are out to take advantage of people. There 
are companies with terrible business practices. Uh, so it's really important, right, that you understand that that that's that that those those people that those companies exist. Um, but it's not everyone, mm. right? And uh, and it's not all big businesses. Mm. Um, it there. I, there are uh, a bunch of unscrupulous, terrible operators of all sizes right. in cannabis. Um, you know, the, the finance industry, the investment industry. Look, I, I've I've spent a lot of time in the the mainstream finance industries. In a lot of ways, that culture is toxic, mm -hmm. right? It is. It's a it's a toxic culture that values um, money to the exclusion of other considerations. Um, so it's important that people understand that and and go into situations with their eyes open. But um, yeah, not everyone, uh, not everyone's bad. Not all not all investors are bad. Uh, I have a lot of real close friends who are um, investors who are in it for the love of the plant, for the social change. Uh, they they want to find real business partners and help them thrive. Um, so. Uh, that's that's out there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is awesome, man. That is that is beautiful. So before we get you out here, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? You know, the, the music artists we get on here, you know, throw out Instagrams and all that. I don't know. I don't know if that's your speed, but is is there anything uh, else that you just like like to plug or, or want people to know where people can find you? If you want people to find you, you might want to stay hidden. I, that's your prerogative. Um, yeah, I mean, you can find us at uh, arcviewconsulting.com or arcviewgroup.com. Uh, if uh, if you've got a, a cannabis business and, and you're looking for help, we'd love to hear from you. We put out all sorts of content. We've got uh, educational webinars um, that happen on a regular basis. We get some of, um, some of the, the brightest minds in cannabis together and have some really substantive conversations that um, that folks can learn a lot from. Uh, we've got our market research division, our free market research with um, all sorts of reports about the cannabis industry if you're just looking to, to learn and get a, a baseline understanding of what that looks like. So uh, yeah, definitely don't, don't be a stranger. Uh, reach out to us and, uh, and uh, enjoy this, this cannabis journey. It is not an easy industry to be in, but it is a really rewarding uh, and fulfilling uh, industry to be in. Awesome, man. I love that, David. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, man. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. All right, guys, that was David Abernathy with the ArcView Group. Super stoked to have him on this podcast. We had a chat with him for an article um, a couple weeks ago, and it was just one of those conversations that was so insightful that I really wanted to get him on this podcast because we, me, me and him just did it over Zoom. And while the article's coming out with some quotes in there, there was just so many gems that I felt guilty hoarding to myself and just wanted to share with other people. Um, so super stoked to, to have him on here. Um, you know, a, a couple of the takeaways that I got there, one of the, one of the, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways from there, but one of the, the biggest takeaways was, um, in talking about the difference between MSO or big business and cannabis and craft cannabis. These are two things that have, have been clashing since the dawn of the talk of legalization. Um, and like we spoke about in this conversation, a definite, uh, inevitability, uh, in the direction of the, of any, 
uh, industry, you know, in, in commerce. Um, but one of the things he said was that, you know, big businesses do process and systems and the details really, really well. And there's, there's a, that that's something that the small brands, small businesses can take from. I mean, obviously you don't, a smaller brand is not going to have the the budget or the the personnel or potentially the experience from other industries to necessarily compete at the same level, but to strive towards getting your SOPs tight, your processes tight, your team tight, just certain things that big business does really well, just to strive to do on a small level. And then for the, the small businesses that are worried about big businesses coming in, you know, the big businesses, like he mentioned, have a really, really hard time authentically connecting with the consumer. A lot of people buy Bud Light or Coors Light, you know, in the beer market simply because of the cost. There's definitely some marketing aspects to it, but people don't necessarily connect to that at the level that they do with craft brands. You know, craft things are people just deeper connections, more connection points. Um, we obviously talk a lot about music. So in the music space, you know, the independent artist usually is going to have the rabid fan base that will wait overnight, you know, do spend an exorbitant amount of money on merchandise from these, these artists. They might have less fans, but their fans are usually at a much higher just a higher connection to the, the said artist as opposed to, you know, mainstream artists can pack out stadiums. But if you look at the majority of those fans, they're just there because their friends there. They're just there because it's hype. It's artists they hear on the radio. They're not as just invested in that artist as independent artists. And so when it comes to record labels, record labels have a heart, you know, they can't just manufacture connections with people. They can't manufacture um, authenticity. They have to find artists that already have something like that going, sign them and give them a greater platform distribution budget and processes to get them out into the world. Very similar to what we were talking about in cannabis as craft brands build up their audience. There's an exit strategy for big businesses that are unable to connect with people or geo-specific areas the way a craft brand can, but a, a big business can come in and a, and buy that business out and distribute it and bring it to a higher level. So it's just it, the connections between music and cannabis run so deep on so many levels. Um, a lot of, and then one of the other biggest takeaways from that conversation and my previous conversation with David was just the, the phrase culture of connoisseurship. It's something that I'm aware of in, you know, from just marketing from books and, and a process of just being a marketer. Um, but it's something that he brought up some points that I just hadn't quite, I hadn't, the dots hadn't been fully connected until our first conversation. Um, and so I just think it's something important to understand when we're, when we're modeling this industry off of other industries is understanding that this industry has a, has a wider array of uses um, in both the ways you can consume and the reasons that you consume. And it also is, has a culture of connoisseurship where people love things for different reasons and connect to things for different reasons. And price point doesn't always necessarily matter as we move towards, you know, this impending national legalization and really scaled out cannabis, you know, there's going to be $8 eighths of potentially decent weed out there where these craft brands are selling, you know, 45 in Washington, at least $45 ace and in California might be 55 to 75. Um, but these higher priced ace that, you know, those people are, already squeezing pennies out of those jars as it is now when it comes to federal legalization without increasing their 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 cultivation facility massively it's going to be hard for them to squeeze the margins that uh, a facility you know a, a producer that has you know 
4 million square feet of canopy, you know, you're just going to be able to produce a product at a much cheaper price than someone that has, you know, 40,000 square feet, which is large by today's standards, but even, you know, 14,000 square feet, um, just the price of goods is going to be, you know, exponentially different between those two things, but both can coexist in this market. As he mentioned, you know, looking at wine, there's wine that is $20,000 per bottle, and there's wine that's a couple dollars per bottle, and both of them move units to different consumers for different reasons. They can sit in the same store without, you know, without people coming in and be like, oh, this cheap wine ruined all the expensive wine. I don't want it anymore. Consumers are going to want different products for different reasons. Um, so that's just something I think is important for smaller and craft brands to just to wrap their head around as, as they move and building their brand and building their audience. And something that I've been preaching for years and will always uh, preach, whether asked for or not, is today is the cheapest and easy it easiest it will ever be to take market share in this industry. Tomorrow will be harder than today. The next day will be harder than today. And it'll also be more expensive every single day. So I urge all of my friends, colleagues, other brands out there that are in craft, that are in this for the right reasons, that are in this for quality. I'm not telling you to sell yourself out on your packaging or go all in on influencers or market or any specific thing. But please, please, please heed these words. Take market share aggressively now while it is cheaper and easier because it's going to be exponentially harder in three years and astronomically harder in 10 years. So go after that now. Um, really appreciate everyone tuning in with us today. Big shout out to David again for coming through. Um, yeah, we'll be back next Wednesday. Uh, this episode will, you can find this episode on Spotify, YouTube, uh, the various channels where podcasts are out. Thank you guys very much. Uh, Joey's not here. He always says something about love you guys. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll say that for you guys. Love you guys. Peace. <laughs>